The following episode contains material that may be harmful or traumatizing to some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The last morning that you saw Jesse when you sent him off to school, can you tell me a little bit about that? I would get up really early. I'd go down and fix a cup of coffee and I'd sit at the kitchen table for a few minutes. And then Jesse would pad in with his blanket and just this little, you know, like just having gotten up, he'd pad over. I'd put my coffee down. I'd just open up my arms and he would come in and we would just sit and snuggle, oh, snuggle for minutes just as long as, you know, I felt like we could. And then I would say, all right, you got to go get dressed. I would do the same. JT would wake up and probably be out on the bus. And this was actually that morning. I mean, it was, you know, a regular morning like any other. And that morning, his dad was picking him up at the end of the driveway. I walked him outside. I had all my stuff to get in the car and go to work. And I turned around to give him a hug. We were actually going to meet at the school, his dad and I, that afternoon to build gingerbread houses. So this was a big deal. I never took time off. I wish that I had more, but I never did. Never took sick days. And so this was a big deal for me to take off the afternoon to go make a gingerbread house with Jesse in his classroom. So we were kind of finalizing those details. I turn around to give Jesse a hug and I notice that he has written with his little fingernail in the frost on the side of my car, I love you. And he had drawn little hearts on all the windows. And so just knowing that that was one of life's most precious moments. I said, hold on, don't go anywhere. I'm gonna run in, I'm gonna get my phone. Ran inside, got my phone, came back out. I remember grabbing him by the shoulders, putting him by the I love you message that he had written on my car, taking a picture, it was overexposed, deleting it, taking another picture, and then taking a close-up picture of I love you on the side of my car, giving him another big hug, and then sending him off. And that was the last picture ever taken of him, the last time I ever saw him. Just a few hours later, six-year-old Jesse would be one of 20 children and six adults killed in the deadliest mass shooting in an elementary school in U.S. history, the fourth deadliest U.S. mass shooting ever. Pick on 911. What's the location of the emergency? Sandy Hook School. I think there's somebody shooting in here. Sandy Hook School. Okay, what makes you think that? Because somebody's got a gun. I thought a glimpse of somebody. They're running down the hallway. Okay. They're still running. They're still shooting. Sandy Hook School, please. From Cast Media, this is Media Circus, an inside look at private tragedy in the public eye. I take high-profile crimes you might think you know and connect you with the real people behind the media coverage to share their stories in their own words, on their own terms. I'm Kim Goldman. Jesse Lewis was a bright and energetic first grader at Sandy Hook Elementary in Newtown, Connecticut. Beloved little brother by his big brother, JT, Jesse was absolutely adored by his parents, Scarlett Lewis, and her ex-husband, Neil Heslin. I spoke with Scarlett back in 2015 when I wrote my book, Media Circus, and I've always admired her kindness and candor when talking about Jesse. I got asked this the other day, actually. Someone said, you know, we always hear about how Ron died, but we don't always hear about how he lived. So 
I want to put that to you in terms of Jesse. If you could tell me a little bit about how he lived. I love that question, Kim. Thank you. And thanks for starting out that way. Because literally for the past 10 years, I've been talking about him in death, you know, and he was such a force of life in constant motion. He was so loud. He had this booming voice, so full of energy. I say kind of bouncing off the walls with energy, but always in constant motion. But then he also had this other side that was just like a little cuddle bunny. He gave the best hugs and we spent a lot of time cuddling. He also had this quieter side. It's just very, very loving, very intuitive, very aware of of how I was feeling. And uh, I mean, every picture of Jesse and I, we're touching somehow we're almost in entwined entangled he's always on my lap or i'm holding him even when he was 6 years old oh gosh when he was murdered that was literally like the first thing i thought about oh my gosh my hugs my snuggles <laughs> december 14th 2012 jesse's dad comes by to pick him up for school they make a quick stop for his favorite breakfast a sausage egg and cheese sandwich at a Newtown neighborhood deli before heading to school at Sandy Hook Elementary. His dad drives him and they kind of were having this back and forth and he was saying, what, what's wrong? And Jesse's like, I, I, I don't know. Neil was thinking like he didn't feel very good. And he's like, what's going on? I mean, you know, this is a great day. Your mom and I are going to meet you in your classroom and we're going to build gingerbread houses. And Jesse said, that's not going to happen kind of like matter of fact. And and he's like, yeah, it is. What are you talking about? Your mom took the day off where we planned it. We bought the kit. It's already in the classroom. Like this all is going to happen. And Jesse's like, it's not going to happen. Neil, Jesse's dad was like, he must not feel very good. I'm just not going to argue about it. So they get to the school. He says he walks them in the front door and he kneels down to give him a hug. And Jesse pats him on the back and looks into his eyes and says, it's okay, dad, everything's going to be okay. And I love you and mom. And then he just turned around and walked away. Around the same time, Scarlett headed out on her daily commute to the office and began her work day. I'd gotten to my office. I poured myself another cup of coffee. I came back to my desk, started getting into some stuff. And uh, there was somebody that I worked with that was home that day that was watching the news. And she instant messaged me and said, hey, I think something's going on in Sandy Hook. There's been a shooting. And then other people started coming up. Doesn't your son go to go to school in Sandy Hook? Well, there's a shooting in a school. And, you know, here's the thing. You go through scenarios in your mind, and I thought, oh, that's terrible, right? That's a terrible thing. I don't know where the shooting was, right? Was it a maybe attempted bank robbery? <laughs> was it a domestic dispute? And then it kind of became more clear. No, it's in a school. Wait, wait, it's in Sandy Hook Elementary School. You should go. Scarlett arrived back at Sandy Hook Elementary, where she began her search for Jesse. I got a little bit more worried when I pulled up to the school. I pull up and I have to park like a quarter of a mile away. And all these people are running around with worried looks on their faces. There are helicopters flying overhead. There are military men already there, every first responder in the state. So I start thinking, wow, this is a bigger deal than I thought. And so I start running to the firehouse And I look for somebody official and I asked the first police officer that I found, I said, hey, I'm looking for my son. His name is Jesse Lewis. Have you seen him? 
And he was like, there's a little yellow house on the side of the firehouse. I think he went there. And I was like, oh, thank you, thank you. So I run over to the little yellow house, I knock on the door, and an older man answers and I said, was my son, Jesse Lewis, did he come here? And he's like, I think that he was here and I think that he went over to the daycare on the other side of the firehouse. So at this point, Neil and I are texting and I'm like, Neil, I'm over at this little yellow house. You need to go to the daycare to figure this, you know, he's supposedly over there. I'm gonna go into the firehouse. They're telling me I have to go into some back room and put his name down on a list. And I'm looking for people that I know that I can ask. And I see these tearful reunions, parents hugging their kids and then, you know, hurriedly going away and nobody knows anything. I don't want to go into that back room. I do not want to put Jesse's name down on a list of missing people. I just want to get him and and leave. I did though, obviously I finally went to the back room. There's this long list of missing people. I had to turn it over and I put Jesse's name on, he was like the last name on it. Never in a million years did I think that that list of people were dead. Scarlett wouldn't give up looking for her son. She tried to get into the school to find Jesse. The building was barricaded, protected by law enforcement, not letting anyone in. Parents were searching frantically for their missing children. It was just chaos. Parents demanding answers. You know, first responders asking really difficult questions, but trying to do it nonchalantly. Like, hey, do you have a recent picture of Jesse? And I was like, yeah, it's on my cell phone, but my cell phone's dead. Well, why don't you charge it in my police car? Because, you know, I'm going to need that picture. And I'm like, okay. And then about, I don't know, maybe an hour later, one of them came up to me and they said, did Jesse have any identifying marks on his body? And I'm like, yes, he had a mole on the top of his right foot. And they're like, oh, okay, thanks. Yeah, It's like, oh, God. A lot of the parents were angry because we weren't told for hours what had happened. They were identifying the bodies, and there were so many bodies, I guess. But, you know, I think for myself, it was just this slow dawning of realization of what was actually happening. And so by the time a man walked up to me and said, there's no easy way to say this, your son's dead. And then walked away. I was like, I had already known it. I I already kind of realized it. He was apprehended, by the way. That man was apprehended? Police came over me. They were like, what did he just say to you? I said, he just told me that my son was dead. He wasn't supposed to say that to you. And so they grabbed him. But I had already known. I mean, that just kind of gives you the level of chaos. It's interesting. It's fascinating, actually, to know the kinds of people that show up at times during intense tragedy. I think he was a therapist uh, that was putting out his shingle in Sandy Hook. He had just moved back. So he was like basically trying to find clients at a mass shooting? Yes. Jesse was gone. Scarlett was in shock. I mean, I was pretty stoic during this time. I had been processing the whole day. My 12-year-old son was there too. And it was very apparent to me that this was a teaching moment for him, that he was learning how to handle difficulty, roadblocks, tragedy 
from me in the moment. And I w- I'm the leader in my family. So everyone was following me and I was making decisions that day and I was wanting peace and I was making sure that we weren't inside, we were outside. I just wanted to find as peaceful a place to wait as possible. So people brought chairs and we sat in a circle. But soon, Scarlett's family would arrive and things began to get real. Unbeknownst to me, my mom had called my brother, a brother that lives in Darien, Connecticut, about 45 minutes away, another brother that lived in Boston. It really wasn't until I watched my mom walk across the parking lot. I looked over from afar and I watched her tell him that Jesse was dead. See, this is what really gets me. And that was when it was, it became real to me. And I saw him bend over double, you know, just like clutch his stomach, just in agony. And I thought, wow, okay, this is real. This is really happening. While Scarlett felt the agony of losing her six-year-old Jesse, the media began to swarm. Indeed, uh, CNN's Ashley Banfield is now on the scene for us in uh, Newtown, Connecticut as well. Every moment, I, I hate to bring this up, but it gives me the sense of Columbine into school. And it is turning out to be worse than anyone could have imagined. Folded here today. Can you imagine being a parent of a little child who saw this scene that you're looking at right now? Uh, just school. It is just overwhelming in this tiny little community of 27,000 people. They had to get some unmarked van and put us in the van to drive us because there was so much media, drive us to our cars. And my mom came with me to mine and there was Jesse's car seat in the back seat, the car seat that he was still riding in at six years old in the back seat. And so I was thinking, wow, he's never going to sit in that car seat again. This is freaking crazy. The thought of going home was just too much to even consider. I was thinking, well, I'm never going to go back to this little farmhouse that I shared with my two boys. I'm never going to go back there. I, I, I never want to see Jesse's stuff strewn around and his little toothbrush and his little PJs that he took off that morning. I, I just, I, I will never do it. We had decorated our Christmas tree. And the night before, I had bought this big train because they had wanted a train to go around the bottom. And the boys were like, oh, can we open the train? Can we set it up? And I'm like, well, that's supposed to be for Christmas morning. And they said, but we really want to play with it tonight. And I was like, okay, fine, just open it and play with it. And so they had this train that went around and they had played with together. And it was such a nice time. And you know, I just I just didn't want to walk into all of that. So I stayed at my mom's for a while. What's interesting to me is how intuitive it sounds like Jesse was. They say the kids are connected. Way before we mess them up as adults, the kids are super connected when they're little. Well, 100%. You know, when I finally did come home, I saw this message that he had written on our kitchen chalkboard shortly before he died, nurturing, healing love. And I hadn't seen it before, but I saw it when I came home and nurturing, healing love. Kim, that shaped the rest of my life because I looked at that and I knew that if the shooter had been able to give and receive nurturing, healing love. I mean, it's pretty simple. People who love themselves <laughs> can love others and they don't want to harm themselves or others. And so I knew that I would be spreading that message for the rest of my life. So it just started from there. All these incredible 
signs and symbols and all these incredible things that happened that have really kind of guided me on my path for the past 10 years. We were in Newtown last night and a number of residents have been inundated with hateful messages, crank calls by people who believe they are part of a government and media conspiracy surrounding the shootings. Now, it's not if just- you've got a school of 100 kids and then nobody can find them, and then you've got parents laughing on, <laughs> and they walk over to the camera and go, not just one, but a bunch of parents doing this, and then photos of kids that are still alive, they said died. I mean, they think we're so dumb that... Daughter, this man, a lot of people say he was an actor pretending to be a grieving father. In were fact, you paying attention to how the media was already covering it at this point? And were there inconsistencies between what you were seeing and what you were hearing early on? There were weird things that started happening, like we were assigned a state trooper, our family, that stayed with us for about two months. And we didn't go anywhere without our state trooper. We'd be driving in the back of his car if we ever wanted to leave the house. Uh, he took our cell phones. And uh, I remember him taking them, and I'm like, why are you taking our cell phones? And he goes, oh, well, they're just some people that are threatening people, and so I'm just taking them to make sure that you don't have any any inappropriate, you know, stuff that's come in. People ask me, like, why would somebody do that? <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, there is no sense to this stuff, right? At Jesse's wake, there were thousands of people lined up outside the door. And you would come in, you would sign your name, you would walk by an open casket. We were lucky enough to have an open casket. Most parents couldn't because their children's bodies were destroyed by bullets. Jesse had had one bullet hole through his forehead. We could have an open casket. So people came in, they went by the casket, and then they would greet the family. And at one point, I'm looking out onto this sea of people, and I see the Hells Angels there. And they have, like, the whole motorcycle gang. They've got their leather vests with the logo on the back and everything. Evidently, they came to keep the order, to make sure that there weren't any disruptors because there were already people saying that it didn't happen. Let's just sit with that for a second. There were people, conspiracy theorists, who were touting their hateful rhetoric that the mass murder at Sandy Hook was a hoax. And it was all led by the website InfoWars and its founder, Alex Jones, the alt-right radio host who ranted these bogus claims to his millions of followers. No, no, I've had the investigators on, I've had... The state police have gone public, you name it. it. The whole thing is a giant hoax. Your brain is so overloaded that you can't even take in nonsense. You know what I mean at that point? But we were aware of it. What are you doing with that information at that point? Are you feeling like you need to combat that? I was trying to focus on surviving, honestly, and not knowing if I could just with this loss and trying to be the best mother that I could for my surviving son. So all the rest of it was just utter nonsense. As my therapist would say, you can't make sense out of nonsense. And I was just way too overloaded to even try. I've always been really responsible with my money and having a budget. But these days, with gas and food just a little bit more expensive, it makes it harder to watch my bottom line. But upside totally helps. Upside is an incredible app for anyone who buys groceries, gas, or dines out. With every purchase, you earn cash back immediately. 
I live in California. We are a commuter state, so needing a full tank of gas is a must. But saving money is too. I use the Upside app to find the best deal on gas before I hit the road, and I'm saving money right and left. It's really just that easy. You download the free Upside app, you use my promo code CIRCUS, and get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. Next, claim an offer for whatever you're buying on Upside. Then when you arrive, click check-in on the app, pay as usual with a credit card or debit card, and get paid. Download the free Upside app and use promo code CIRCUS to get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. That's $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more using promo code CIRCUS. Not all media was perpetuating rumors and outright lies. We had a lot of media reaching out, but the great thing for me was that I wasn't home. So they didn't know where I was. I was at my mom's house. I think there was somebody from People Magazine that reached out to my brother because they had gone to school together. So I remember my brother coming up and going, hey, it's People Magazine. Do you want to talk to them? And I'm like, no, no, I don't want to talk to anybody. And he asked me again. And I'm like, I already told you no. And then the third time he came up and he goes, look, I'm only asking you because if you don't talk to them, then they're going to talk to Neil. And then Neil is going to tell Jesse's story and it will be his version. So I was like, give me the phone. (laughs) I remember (laughs) taking the phone. I went up to my mom's room. I shut the door. I just shared Jesse's message because I it was really important to me that it came from me. And by the way, I just want to say People Magazine has always been amazing with me and the people there have been really great for the Choose Love movement. They do a good job also of making sure that people remember. And it's it's hard to remember, but it's necessary because we don't want this to happen. So we need to remember that this stuff happens and that it can be prevented. When we talked back in 2015, you had shared with me that you had a pretty decent relationship with the media and they've been kind to you. Has that maintained since then? Have there been any areas where it hasn't been so positive? There was one incident where a woman came to my house and I had friends that were in my house. And this woman came in and said that she was my friend, that she went to school with me and she really wanted to get in touch with me. And could they give her my number? And uh, that was just a reporter from somewhere. I don't even remember where. And so that, of course, is, is the dark side of the media. But that was only that one incidence. And everyone else was very respectful. And even since then, even in the reporting for anniversaries and events that we've had, but also, you know, the more recent Alex Jones trial, I feel like the media has really done a good job of covering at least from my perspective, the events. <laughs> I will say on a larger scale, I mean, I went to Boston University. I got a degree in communications and I worked at a paper for a while. And I remember in my journalism classes at the college, I would write an article, I would hand it in to the professor and it would come back filled with red circles. And he would say, this is your opinion and journalists report on facts. And I'd be like, I don't understand. These are facts. And he'd say, no, they're opinions. Go back and put facts in there. And nobody cares about your opinion. 
And so that made sense to me. I learned journalism in school. And what I'm seeing today from many sources is not journalism. That's across the board. In the days and months and even years that followed Jesse's murder, Scarlett and her family were targeted by Alex Jones and other, quote, truthers. But it took me about a year with Sandy Hook to come to grips with the fact that the whole thing was fake. Problem is, I've watched a lot of soap operas, and I've seen actors before. And I know when I'm watching a movie, I don't want to watch something real. In fact, I, for a while, thought it didn't happen, then I thought it probably did. And now, seeing how synthetic everything is, and my original instinct, maybe Alex Jones is all with I'm pretty much right 99% of the time, folks, and so are you. I, mean, we all- I really realized this isn't going to stop. We had emails, we had people coming up to me, and, uh, you know, I had locks on my door. We would have people driving into the driveway, and this is every day. JT had emails going to his school that CC'd everyone in the state, including the FBI. And then other families would have things that happened and we would text and email amongst ourselves or we would hear about it in an interview. You know, we're all kind of a family because we all have these kids and we're all together uh, with the experience at least. And so if something happens to one person, it happens to all of us. So like it seemed like almost all the time there was some sort of threat happening to someone. And you're hyper alert anyway because your son has been murdered. You're hyper aware all the time of things that are going on. And so this stuff was just a continuous flow and continuous harassment. After years of harassment, Scarlett had had enough. On October 31st, 2018, she filed a lawsuit against Alex Jones and his website InfoWars. In the petition filed, it stated that, quote, InfoWars has aggressively promoted a dreadful and despicable false narrative about Sandy Hook, mocking the families as liars and accusing them of a sinister conspiracy, end quote. These families tried to ignore him for years, thought that that would be the good strategy, not give him any air. And we see that doesn't work because he's not going away. He's been trial for conspiracy theorist Alex Jones gets underway today in Austin with jury selection. This will determine how much money Jones has to pay parents of two Sandy Hook elementary students for falsely saying the 2012 shooting was a hoax. The case went to trial. Opening statements were made July 26, 2022. Never in the human history of defamation has somebody for 10 years over and over and over to a global audience harassed, lied, and attacked the parents of murdered children. My attorney literally started the whole day off at the beginning of the trial saying, hey, this is unprecedented. We've never had to bring somebody to trial in the history of America, at least, because they are bullying victims' parents of a tragedy. I mean, I lived it. And still, I just couldn't believe I was sitting in this courtroom and that we were literally having to force accountability on a person that was saying that not only did Sandy Hook not happen, but my son never existed, and that I am a CIA agent hired to take away people's guns, and gun control has never been my message. You know what my message is? It's choosing love. Do you think I'm making a killing off of this? (laughs) I mean, it's just crazy. 
I don't want to be so blunt, but like, what took so long? You know, if this started going on in 2012, what was your breaking point that you finally decided to haul him into court? It was Neil's interview with Megyn Kelly. Neil Heslin's son, Jesse, just six years old, was murdered, along with 19 of his classmates and six adults. I lost my son. I buried my son. I held my son with a bullet hole through his head. And it was just how the other side doubled down on what they were saying. And they mocked Neil for saying that he held his dead son. He's Joe, okay? I think that's what acts like somebody on the spectrum. He's claiming that he held his son and saw the bullet hole in his head. That is his claim. Now, according to a timeline of events and a coroner's testimony, that is not possible. I mean, if you look at that, the episode on InfoWars with Owen Troyer, and I mean, oh my God, he's like laughing and he's like, yeah, so, right. You'd think a guy would remember if he held his dead son and, uh, huh, think we're going to hear from him? Think we're going to hear from Megyn Kelly to clear this thing up? I wouldn't hold your breath. And I was like, Alex, you got this? You hearing this? And it's like, wow, whoa. I mean, so much is wrong with that. So much is wrong with that. And it is such a tell on where we are in our society. There is zero empathy. They already knew internally that the sources that they were relying on were, uh, excuse my phrase, but this is the phrase that they batted around, that shit crazy. And so they're relying on these sources and they're perpetuating this lie with zero compassion or empathy. And it was, it was literally frightening for me to see. Alex Jones's attorney has tried to paint him as some sort of personality and not an actual journalist claiming he doesn't have the same responsibility. Was he a shock jock or was he a journalist? And his attorney tried to compare him to Howard Stern. And, you know, he's just a shock jock. But in reality, his banner says something about the truth. And he calls himself a journalist. And there are ethics, <laughs> like morals and ethics that we have as human beings. He was saying, oh, I'm just questioning. All I did was speculate and ask questions. I have a right to do that. It has been the lawyers, the Democratic Party, and the whole Sandy Hook anti-gun crew that has attached themselves to me for years. And I don't have a problem with questioning. I don't have a problem that he was even on day one going, wait a minute, you know, this is kind of strange. How could this happen? Because you know what? It was strange. How could... 26 people be viciously murdered in an elementary school in a sleepy little town in New England. I mean, it is freaking crazy, right? So for him to question it is one thing, but you question for facts. And then when you are not questioning for facts, but you're just creating a whole show out of it, and then you're selling products on top of that, it's not okay. You said that under oath. I mean, if I was mistaken, I was mistaken, but you, you got the messages right there. You know what perjury is, right? I just want to make sure you know before we go any further. You know what it is. Yes, I do. I mean, I'm not a tech guy. I honestly think, Kim, that if they had gotten on the stand and they had literally been human being-like, if they had even pretended or acted like they had a conscience... 
like they understood on some level that what they were doing was wrong and was negatively impacting the parents of a murdered child. They clearly didn't. But even if they had pretended like they did, the jury would not have awarded what they awarded us. If they had gotten on the stand and just said, oh my God, we're so sorry. I mean, if they were decent human beings, they would have said that anyway. Oh my gosh, this thing got way out of hand. We were so wrong, but they didn't. And when they were asked by the attorney, like, okay, you see the parents, you've heard about how much pain this has caused them for almost a decade. Are you sorry that you did this? Both of Alex Jones's people, Owen Schroyer was like, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, this has really hurt my career. (laughs) It's like, is there anything you would recant about the Sandy Hook story? If so, why? I would have just not covered it at all. It was not a subject material that I was familiar with. And that four minutes of my life has caused tremendous negative effects on my career and livelihood. Did he just really say that? Oh, my God. And then uh, Ms. Korpova, who was the corporate representative, when she was asked that same question, she said, absolutely, I'm sorry. This has been terrible for Alex Jones's health. He suffered, you know, physically and emotionally over this. This whole Sandy Hook thing has weighed heavily on him because people don't know the shooter's name, but they think Alex Jones murdered those children. Um, And my attorney actually laughed because he was like, Do you understand the hypocrisy of you saying that? I don't think she did. And even Alex Jones, when he got on the stand and my attorney basically asked the same question, do you understand? Like you see the parents, do you understand what you did? And Alex was like, hey, I just want this to be over. My kids are getting bullied in school over this. And it's like, did he just say that? Did he just say that? I mean, my son was bullied by the people that were feeding him information and he was giving a platform to. My son was bullied in school by them. And and so for me, Kim, the larger issue here is that this is what we're perpetuating in our society. Sitting in that courtroom and actually seeing this unfold in front of my eyes. And I mean, you don't have to take my word for it because it was live streamed. Anybody can watch it. You know, I was surprised that people wanted to. But this is where a portion of us have come. Uh, it's 100% real. And the media still ran with lies that I was saying it wasn't real on air yesterday. It's incredible. They won't let me take it back. They just want to keep me in the position of being the Sandy Hook man. I saw Alex's apology, air quoting. I never intentionally tried to hurt you. I never even said your name until this case came to court. Uh, I didn't even really know who you were until a couple years ago when all this started up. I want to first know how you felt when he first said his apology and then how you moved to a place of compassion. So part of my message anyway, I mean, I forgave the shooter, the recent former graduate of Sandy Hook Elementary School who chose to come back to his elementary school where he attended, where his mother taught and perpetrate his crime on soft targets. He knew where the first graders were. That's why he went down that hallway. I chose to forgive him. I knew that somebody that could do something so heinous must have been in a tremendous amount of pain. I found out about his pain and it was a lifetime of neglect 
and of the just basically inability to process the hurt and pain that he had. He was bullied. He was most likely abused. And so it's not even really shocking when you look at his life and what he went through, that it went from start and then it ended in an attack. I I watched everybody blame him. And I thought, well, (laughs) what's our responsibility in this? You know, I asked the hard question that nobody's asking. And that is, how did we fail him? How did we fail him? Because he wasn't born a mass murderer. He was cultivated into what he became. So the question we need to be asking ourselves is how did we fail him? And I think that until we face that question, we're never going to get ahead of this problem in our society until we start taking some responsibility for what's going on with our kids and the suffering that they're in. A child that's that's well-adjusted, that can process pain, that has social-emotional competence, that is loved and can give love, doesn't do things like that. So, right, but Alex Jones is a grown-ass adult. Yeah, let's talk about Alex Jones. I, I wanted to explain because, because I also know the power of forgiveness and and so it helps you give give your personal power back. So like if you don't forgive somebody, then they have control of your thoughts, which impact how you feel, which then impact how you behave. And so it was important to me while this whole Alex Jones thing was going on, that even though it impacted every day of my life and I, I felt fear and all of this changed so many things for me and it kept me from healing from my loss because when you're fearful, you're not healing I still knew the power of forgiveness and I wanted to forgive him and I had forgiven him, but that doesn't mean that I don't hold him accountable. And it doesn't mean, I mean, you know, we actually had level four security, Kim, because there were threats going around. And so we never went anywhere. We were pretty much in our hotel rooms and we had guards everywhere clearing our rooms at night. It was kind of crazy. So he would be on the stand and he would be, Uh, saying things, but giving these tells of not being honest. He was coughing, 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 and he was trying to explain he had a torn larynx. And I was coughing because I I think I have allergies, but I was uncomfortable. And I was in the back. I had this huge bag of cough drops and I had extra water. So I handed him four cough drops and a water and he, he was appreciative and that blew up online because, oh my God, she's kind to him, but you would do that for, for anyone. He was just a human being that was coughing. But then it was interesting because afterwards our security was like, oh yeah, well, people cough when they're lying and they make exaggerated movements and, uh, you know, all these things that they were saying that they saw him do. But of course I was coughing too. He's got an army of followers. He was on the stand. He said it was 100% true. Sandy Hook happened. Do you think that gets to the masses? So do you think he's suddenly turned everybody back to be more sensitive and compassionate? Do you feel responsible for what happened to the Sandy Hook families? Yes, I killed the children. But beyond that... No, I mean, I went in that school. I pulled a gun out. I shot every one of them myself. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm guilty. It's true. No, but I'm... No, no, let's just... Do I feel responsible that someone on on played shoot 'em up video games on a bunch of drugs went and killed a bunch of kids and then the internet questioned it and I covered that? No, I don't feel responsible and I don't apologize anymore. I'm done. He would have done himself a really great service 
if he really had turned it around, he could have. He could have said, all right, maybe I didn't realize the extent of the damage that I caused in these people's lives, but I know it now. And even if he didn't want to admit it, you know, the jury gave down a big award. And so obviously, obviously they thought so. And he could have said, all right, yes, we made a mistake. I mean, my God, people have made big mistakes and then they come back. And if he really recommitted himself to telling the truth, it would help his credibility. I think we did have a moment where when I handed him the water and I handed him the cough drops and he put his hand out, I took his hand, we looked into each other's eyes and he said, I am truly sorry. And I believe that he is, but also then I believe that he's addicted to his audience and to approval and to money and to every greed and everything lies everything that he's trying to fill this deep void within himself of misery what does 43 million dollar whatever the judgment was teach you if not to change your ways was it all for naught I mean, he's trying to get out of paying the judgment now too, right? Well, here's the thing. People look at that money and the judgment, but there's a $750,000 cap for punitive damages in the state of Texas anyway. And then there's an appeal and then there's a bankruptcy. And then there's all these other Sandy Hook parents breathing down his neck with more trials. So, I mean, and it's never been about the money. It's about the message that message that was sent out, and I was really happy that it was, my attorney literally asked the jury to choose love over hatred and lies and fear, and they did. But that message that went out was, you know, you you lie about people in the media and you hurt them and you're going to be held accountable. And I was so glad that that went out. And I thought this is going to change the tide. And I don't know if it will for Alex Jones, because he's got other stuff going on in his life. He must, he must not be in a healthy enough position to be able maybe to make the choices that he needs to make. I know that he has a lot of fear right now because he's risking losing everything. And I think that there's some things that must be overshadowing his ability to make the right choice because he could grow from here or he could destroy himself. But I have to say, like when he was on the stand and I was just thinking, just be quiet. I think even the judge said that at one point, like, like, just, just be quiet. Just because you claim to think something is true does not make it true. It does not protect you. It is not allowed. You are under oath. That means things must actually be true when you say them. Don't talk. You understand what I have said. I do understand. I remember hearing the judge say that. She was awesome. I'm glad that you said what you did about the monetary award um, with the civil case. I mean, it's no surprise to the world that we never collected on our judgment or we well, actually we tried but we were unsuccessful i think it's up to 100 million at this point that we're owed i know i think people think that we walk away with, with the like big a check thing, right <laughs> like one of those checks you get in the grocery store you just won 43 million dollars that right. is not how it works people <laughs> i was laughing i'm like i walked away with a credit card bill with hotel and meals and like i'm still paying it off <laughs> 
Completely. So I'm, I'm glad that you're bringing attention to it because I think that there is a, a misunderstanding about why we pursue things and, uh, you know, uh, following what the law allows us to do. So you went to court, you filed what you needed to file. It followed the process legally. And it wasn't about money. It's about holding someone accountable. And I, I'm really glad that you're differentiating that because I think people are thinking... And I don't know if you've received this, but, you know, we certainly did that we're money hungry, we're, you know, it's blood money, that that was all that we were after. And I thought, no, I just wanted it on the record. I just wanted it on the record that somebody was responsible for the pain that they caused. You have to hold people accountable. And our legal system is the way to do it. It has made cars safer. It's made airlines safer. I felt that it was something that I had to do. I didn't want to do it, honestly, because I just want to do my my movement. I want to be in schools with kids and, and I want to be speaking. I did not want to go to Austin for two weeks and be sequestered in a hotel room with level four security and threats all around us. I did not want that. I didn't want it for my son but I felt like I was in a position to be able to make positive change for other people and that it was my responsibility to do it. And so that's why I followed through. It was literally the hardest thing that I've had to do in the last 10 years since my son's murder. It was really hard for me. And I'm, I'm glad that I did it because we need to move back to truth. Truth and trust you get you have when when you tell the truth there's a trust there we need trust in our society we need it to have relationships but we also need it to exist as a society we need to trust one another if we don't trust a common reality then we don't have a civil society and that's a really scary thing This is kind of groundbreaking that you did this with Alex Jones and that you were successful. The other historic move, suing the gun manufacturer um, and being successful in that, which I think even President Biden said was historic, that the families of Sandy Hook were able to hold them accountable. The families arguing that adding they purposefully appealed to the kinds of people who are the most likely to commit uh, mass murder. In fact, I think in California, Governor Newsom just passed a law that families can continue to sue gun manufacturers. Governor Newsom signed legislation into law that would allow people to sue gun makers and distributors to hold them responsible for gun violence. What kind of pride do you feel with taking these steps and and paving the way for future potential victims and survivors. I'm glad that you asked about that Remington lawsuit because I think people assume that it was about the actual gun and it's some kind of anti-gun thing and it wasn't at all. It was literally about the marketing of those weapons to younger boys. There's a whole wartime industry for weapons and that industry had dried up. And so the company was trying to figure out, well, how do we continue with sales when we're not selling these guns to other countries for war or here? They decide to change them in in some way and then market them to younger men as a way to get their man card. And that is irresponsible marketing. And so that's really what that lawsuit was about. And I'm glad to be able to talk with you on that because I really haven't spoken at all about that. 
It was not gun control. It was about marketing and it was about responsible marketing to our young people. And I hope that that historic lawsuit made marketers across the country and manufacturers aware that we have to take responsibility for how we market to our young people. I advocate for responsibility. We have to take responsibility for what's going on with our children, in our world, in our schools. Uh, we can't, we can't just, uh, you know, say, oh, it's, we're going to wait on a law or, uh, somebody's going to fix this for us. Come on, politicians. What's going on? Where are you? You know, <laughs> I, I have a, a little message for those who are waiting. It's not coming. There's no plan from the top. It's you and me doing positive actions, taking responsibility for what's going on. There is no other way. There's no magic law. There's no blue pill. It's called action. And that is what I'm trying to do. As uncomfortable as it is for me, I am trying to create positive change. And I'm trying to send the message out, hey, you will be held accountable. So think twice before you market something irresponsible to our youngsters. I'm really glad that you're saying that. I think that there's a perception about victims and survivors that, you know, we're left in the fetal position after the tragedy has struck us. And while that would be totally okay if people are in that place, many of us go on to do the kind of advocacy work that you're doing because nobody else is doing it for us. Yeah. And we're put in a position where we can. And if we can, we really need to. In 2013, shortly after Jesse's murder and in his name, Scarlett founded the Jesse Lewis Choose Love Movement. I started this based on Jesse's chalkboard message, knowing that if the shooter had been able to give and receive love, the tragedy would never have happened. So a very simple concept. And, uh, and then created a lifespan program out of it that is in over 10,000 schools and 120 countries now. So uh, being taught in every state, I think almost 4 million kids are benefiting from this. It's all no cost because it would have saved my son's life and it can reduce and prevent so much of the suffering that we're seeing in our society. And I'm not just talking about school violence. I'm talking about substance abuse and overdose. I'm talking about mental illness. I'm talking about bullying. I'm talking about the lack of essential life skills, the lack of ability to process pain literally leads to all of those issues, lack of connection and belonging. And we can teach kids these essential life skills that we're not born with. So, you know, if you're out there and you're thinking, well, I teach this to my kids. Well, I was 44 years old and I didn't have these skills and tools. I've learned them through creating my own program and then giving it away. And it really, it helps with every aspect of your life as an adult, but it definitely is a path to flourishing for our children. Because as human beings, we are literally designed to grow through roadblocks, challenges, difficulty, pain and suffering in our life. We wonder why these bad things happen. 
Well, they are all opportunities for growth. As you know, despite the pain, we can learn from it, grow through it, be strengthened by it. And then we can do as you and I have done, Kim, take that wisdom, that wisdom that you get from learned experience and use it to help other people. I mean, that's why we're talking right now. And that is exactly what the Choose Love movement teaches. It teaches a powerful formula that is a path to flourishing for everyone. It starts with courage. And the example that I like to give in courage is Jesse's courage when he stood up to the shooter that came into his first grade classroom and saved nine of his classmates' lives before losing his own. Oh my goodness, we should never expect any six-year-old or even put them in that situation. But he literally did save nine of his classmates' lives before losing his own. You found that Jesse had actually been instrumental in saving some of the other kids' lives. Nine lives, yeah. How did he do that? The, uh, the shooter uh, entered Jesse's classroom and uh, continued his killing spree, killing Jesse's beloved Miss Soto, his teacher, and then his gun ran out of bullets. So during the short time that it took for him to, uh, I guess, disengage his clip and, uh, and reload, Jesse, sensing the delay, yelled out to nine of his classmates and told them to run. And they said that it was because he yelled, run, that they ran and they were saved. Here's the deal. We all have the capacity for that courage in our lives. The courage to do the right thing, not just what is easy, right, which is what we've been talking about today. It's the courage to put our best foot forward despite the pain that we may be feeling. It's the courage to be kind to somebody when someone's not being kind to us. And it's the courage to choose love over fear. I'm inspired by you. And I love that while we were talking, there's a picture of Jesse on the wall behind you. It kept me grounded. And I'm just certainly very grateful for you being so willing to share. There's a lot of crossover when you talk about Jesse being courageous in his last minutes, my brother did the same thing. And so I, that really hits and strikes such a deep chord. So thank you for that. Thank you for sharing and always being so willing. I know that both you and I think about that courage and that inspires us every day to be able to do what we do. You don't have to be writing a book or doing the podcast. Like, obviously this isn't the easiest thing for you. And it's not the easiest thing for me to be talking about it, but we're here anyway. We show up, we talk about it. We try to do everything in our power to make this a safer, more peaceful and loving world. And I just call on the audience today to help us help spread the message. And, you know, the opposite of anxiety is positive action. It is literally doing something. That doesn't mean something on your cell phone. (laughs) It doesn't mean tweeting something out. It literally means taking positive action and doing something to help someone else. And you know, when we, sometimes we feel like, oh my God, well, what could I do? It doesn't make a difference. Well, it does make a difference. And as soon as you take that positive step, you feel better. All of a sudden you're not a victim, right? You're a victor, you're helping, you're part of the solution. And we need to really motivate everybody, get them out of the seemingly daze that they're in. Look, we don't have to be a nation that has school shootings that our children are afraid of, that are in the back of every parent's mind. We don't have to have violence in our streets. We can start 
you know, addressing the root cause. We focus on the problems as they grow and we continue to do the same thing over and over expecting a different result. We need to take a quarter of our resources, that's time, energy, and money, and focus on the root cause of all of this, Kim, and we can reduce and prevent so much of the suffering. And so you're doing your part. I'm trying to do my part. And I just ask that everybody out there that's listening do theirs as well. We're all in this together and we're stronger together. Wow. Wow. Thank you. I love you. Kim. You know that I'm with you on this journey always. Me too. Thank you, Scarlett. You've always been so kind and I appreciate it. To support Scarlett's work and to continue Jesse's incredible legacy, visit chooselovemovement.org. To continue the conversation, please follow me on social media at Kim E. Goldman. Media Circus is a cast original podcast, executive produced and hosted by me, Kim Goldman. Produced by Jackie McDougall. Edited by Jordan Cantor. Mixed and mastered by Anton Doty. Harper Carlton as our associate producer. Subscribe to Media Circus wherever you listen to podcasts and please share with a friend.